Hello, I'm Will. Welcome to ResearchBot. Climate change is real, happening now, and happening the world over. However, it is not an evenly distributed problem. Coastal areas are the most susceptible to rising sea levels, as are the people living there. There is one coast that most people in the world will never get to see. Less populated than most, but just as susceptible, and its fate may well affect the rest of the planet. The response of Antarctica to climate change is one of the big research questions facing the British Antarctic Survey. I'm talking today with David Barnes, marine ecologist and lecturer, about life on the ice, life under it, and what the future may hold for polar regions. Hi David, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for inviting me to join you. For a little bit of background for our listeners, could you tell us a bit about yourself, kind of what led you to be in the position to make the kind of assessments on Arctic conditions that we're talking about today? Yeah, uh, Antarctic mainly, a, a little bit of Arctic as well. Yeah, I'm David Barnes. I work with the British Antarctic Survey and teach at Cambridge University. And I'm a marine ecologist that mainly focuses on looking at life on the seabed and more specifically, life on the shallow seabeds, the continental shelf that surrounds the continent of Antarctica and around the margins of the Arctic. And I look at the way that life on the seabed, the benthos, is responding to physical change, be it temperature, loss of sea ice, um, and other factors. There are uh, Climate change is a very complicated subject and there are, there are very many things involved. So it's not just a case of looking at one stressor, but very many stressors piled on top of um, direct pressures like pollution. You may have heard of plastics um, and things like um, uh, habitat loss and habitat changing and fishing pressure and so on. How much does this kind of represent the current mission of the British Antarctic Survey? So the British Antarctic Survey have a very wide range of um, polar monitoring and trying to understand the way that the polar regions um, interact with and affect the rest of the world. And that can be glaciology in terms of looking at the ice sheets and their mass balance and their flux and how they interact with sea level change. And after all, sea level around the world is largely governed by um, the polar regions in terms of how much is ice and how much is liquid. Um, and also atmospheric changes above the polar regions. So a lot of atmospheric chemistry, most famously affected the ozone hole. And although the ozone hole is repairing, ozone losses strongly interact with weather and, and climate change. Um, so for example, they change wind strengthening and wind direction. And so that in turn affects sea ice and air-sea interaction in terms of getting gas into water and so on. And then right the way through to physical oceanography and looking at the, um, the extent of warming in the water and the way that currents in layers under the water um, sort of deeper in the water um, are lapping onto the continental shelf and, and melting glaciers and ice shelves from the underneath, not just surface melting from, from the sun, and how 
sinking of water is changing um, and so affecting the balance of current systems and an obvious one in the Arctic is looking at less sinking of um, surface water in the Arctic and therefore less pull on water to replace that, weakening things like the North Atlantic current, in turn giving us cooler winters despite getting hotter summers from climate change. So lots of complicated things going on where there are global systems affected by the polar regions, both physically and biologically. And then my role and my wider team's role is looking at the biology and we have uh, all sorts of terrestrial biologists looking at the greening and opening up of moss banks and, and flowering plants and the small micro animals on land and how they are responding to change. And then also marine biologists looking at things like changing patterns of krill and salps, the, the, the plankton and their cascades of higher predators from penguins and seals and whales and how that is all changing with climate and other factors such as fishing. And then there's my more specialised team looking at life on the seabed, which is actually where most of Antarctica's species live. Um, they're probably the less well-known ones and the harder to see ones, but very, very diverse, as, as diverse as anywhere else in the world um, in the seas, with the exception of coral reefs. Um, so you would be surprised by, by how much is there. Um, but that means that we have uh, a building with very many people doing um, interlinked work. And that's, and that's the, the real key to understanding a lot of this is all about being multidisciplinary. So there are all sorts of aspects about the way that change affects biology that I can't answer and don't have the knowledge sets for, and um, but I can walk along a corridor and talk to physical oceanographers or glaciologists or um, atmospheric scientists um, and understand other pieces in the puzzle. And by working together um, across many groups, and particularly I work with marine geophysicists and geologists, um, so I can understand the nature of the seabed and change there and response of biology to that and of the, um, the changing of currents and warming of water above them. So it really does rely on um, very good teamwork and establishing good teams, not just in our institute or not even just across the UK. There is a very active polar community across the universities and other institutes in the UK, but much more widely, we have a a diverse set of projects, Coast Carb, involving uh, many European countries and South American ones, the Antarctic Seabed Carbon Capture Change Project involving scientists across six countries. And there we are exploring around Antarctica and it allows us to pull together diverse expertise, and different ways of seeing um, problems and different expertise on parts of the problem. So if you like, we're facing a thousand piece jigsaw and with wide networks, then maybe we've got a hundred of those pieces um, and we can try and interpolate and work out how we can work out what the other pieces might be and how they might help us to understand the bigger picture that the whole puzzle is of. Do you get to spend much time yourself on any of the boats? 
Yeah, I do. Um, it's one of the wonderful things about the job. I've been going there for 30 years now, and I still absolutely love it. Ah, yes, sailing into um, Antarctic waters, different seas of the Southern Ocean is just marvellous. The camaraderie on board the ship, you're all there for this bigger purpose, and the, the wildness of the environment. Quite often we're in quite heavy seas, and lashing waves um, coming over the deck and it really feels like you you are in a place where nature rules um yes i I've, i guess i've spent a total of about five years there now my my first sort of concentrated spell from the end of 1990 to 1993 was 33 months continuously and that's quite a quite a sort of severe introduction and you really you really do feel at one with the environment and walking back to your your research station feels like going home um, but now i'm i'm much more sanitized and uh, um, and visit briefly on on the ships so I, I guess i'm usually down now for about six weeks two months at a time but not of course the last year because um covid has has changed our lives as, as well as everybody else's and so we're having to be very, very careful to try and make sure that we keep COVID out of our stations and our ships, which so far we've managed to do. When it comes to something you mentioned about the camaraderie on the boats and the feeling of working towards a bigger purpose, how philosophically does it feel to connect the actions that you are taking on those boats, the measurements that you're taking? The very small human experience of this vast expanse of a landscape and the huge geological time that we're talking about, you know, measurements for hundreds, thousands of years, the impacts of millions of tons of carbon, the phytoplankton blooms stretching for kilometers. How, on a personal level, do you connect to the scale of the problem and the scale of the, the whole scenario that you are in on that boat? I have to say, sometimes it feels a bit daunting um, that... There are constantly crises of confidence that it's so easy to make a mistake. And so you're trying to double check everything and get people to check each other. And you, you really don't want to make errors, but we're all human and you, you know that we are. So there's, there's always the worry about making mistakes with the apparatus or the interpretation, but also when you're tired and very, very cold outside, there's also the worry of making errors for safety. And so, again, you, you are all uh, acutely aware that you need to be really careful, scientifically really careful for safety, and that it's a very challenging problem. Um, and even after 30 years, I'm, I'm still constantly discovering that I kind of knew less than I thought I did and understand even less than that. It just, it always seems to be becoming more and more complicated. And there's things that you thought you'd got a grasp of, and then you hear something or see something or read a new scientific paper, and you realize that you just didn't quite understand it as well as you thought you had. And so again, it really reinforces the importance of teams and of getting on really, really well with people so that you can speak your minds and trust each other. And yes, it, it is... It is a very important task that I think we have. Um, the polar regions are really 
the nerve centers of um, climate effects on, on the planet. And they're also a big part of some of the solution. And so we're, we're very privileged to be there exploring this and trying to provide advice to governments and to, to business and organizations. And so we, we have to take that role very seriously as well. And whilst it's awing to be there in the beauty of all that nature and to have that raw environment, you're well aware that your time there is limited and you've got an important job to do. So you need to do it really well. So it's a sort of a real mixture of emotions. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not lost on me that we have to tread carefully and, um, and do our jobs really well. <laughs> I suppose to start off with a natural system in balance as much as there is any balance in nature, what does a year in the life of the benthos in Antarctic conditions look like without having to worry about human interaction or climate change? Well, um, first, it looks very cold. Um, it, it's also remarkably constant compared with any other surface environment on the planet. And I say surface because it does have some similarities with the deep sea. So the year round temperature cycle, for example, is about plus one, plus two in the, the dizzy heights of summer. Um, so pretty cool. And during the winter, about minus 1.85. And I say that very specifically because that's the freezing point of normal salinity seawater. So there is a lot of the year when the sea is very cold uh, at freezing temperatures. And then in the summer, it races up to uh, one degree for a few months and then back down again. So it's very constant in terms of temperature. The salinity and how salty the water is, is quite salty compared with, well, for example, around the UK. And that too is remarkably constant. So... For many things, the sea there might seem hostile to us, but to organisms that have become adapted to those conditions, it might be seen as a relatively benign environment because it's so similar all year round. And it's been like that for about four and a half million years or more. So it's a very constant place. During the summer, much of the sea is open water. Looks, looks a bit like here, but with floating icebergs and small bits of ice. But during the winter, the sea surface freezes. When the air temperature gets below zero and the, the sea temperature is dipped below zero, then the sea surface can freeze. Um, it's called fast ice, and it can freeze for hundreds of kilometres in all directions away from Antarctica, approximately doubling the size of the apparent sort of land the sort of solid sea surface. So that becomes a period of very low light because snow falls on top of the ice and doesn't, doesn't penetrate through much. Um, so it's quite dark in the water and it's very still because there's not much wave or current and can move around underneath, underneath that ice. So it's a very still, very cold and very calm place. And then the summer bursts out and light floods in. You get big phytoplankton blooms. And so it's a time of plenty 
for life on the seabed and life, life in the water column. And those phytoplankton blooms, the marine algae, um, give rise to a lot of production in the sea. And so if you see it during the summer, which is when most um, scientists or tourists or anybody in Antarctica would see it, you see this, this sort of super productive summer with icebergs drifting around and smashing into the seabed. So it's super productive, but it also has these losses. And then it goes back to a calm, still place as the sea freezes for the rest of the year. And that's kind of life in the eye of an organism that would live there. Sounds almost tranquil. <laughs> but you mentioned it's been, you know, that kind of way for a couple of million years. I can imagine that in the last hundred or so, things have taken a bit of a shock from the amount of, like you mentioned already, pollution, human activity, tourists, visitors coming along for the immediate effects, but also the atmospheric and ecosystem changes that we're seeing played out on a global level. The change recently has been very, very striking compared to the past. There is one thing I haven't mentioned, that for 90,000 of each 100,000 years, the polar regions are in glaciation and covered by very thick ice that grounds out even to hundreds of metres deep in the sea. So it looks very different for most of the time in the polar regions. It's just that we're in a warm phase at the moment. And so this modern change is stamped over the top of the change that it's going through anyway, in that it's coming out of the last glaciation and perhaps on the way to the next, although that, of course, now is unlikely. So there is always change. And understanding the change that we see now is only possible once we understand the normal amount of change. It is warm now compared to a sort of an average year in the polar regions, because an average year in the polar regions um, for the last sort of four and a half, five million years has been glaciation. So, yes, there has been dramatic change now, but to understand how, how dramatic that change is, we have to understand normal change. And there's the seasonal change that we all understand, you know, going from summer to winter, it's, it's just like that here. And then there is the longer term change of some, some years are colder than others. Um, and there are long term environment cycles like El Nino Southern Oscillation event that some people have heard of. Um, which is a kind of global phenomenon. And then there's the longer term glaciations. So once we've had all that context, we can look at the really quite drastic rise in carbon dioxide that we have our, in our atmosphere. And a lot of that has been soaked up into the sea, making the sea a bit more acid. And also uh, it is a lot of that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reflects more light energy and heat back in, uh, which is warming the seas and melting some of the ice. Um, and with that ice melt comes freshening, more fresh water coming into the sea. And with glacier retreat, there is more silt coming in from underneath the glaciers. And so there is an increase in particulates. So there's lots of things all going on at the same time, but to different extents in different places. So it's very tempting to think of Antarctica or the Arctic as one place. That would be like considering Europe as one place and the changes that go on in 
England, for example, um, are they mirrored by what's going on in Moscow or Helsinki? Or, um, and so we need to think of it as a very large place with very varying trends across its regions. West Antarctica has lost sea ice much faster than most of the rest of Antarctica. There are places that are warming very strongly, other places that aren't warming at all, and some places that are even cooling a little. Overall, we can see that warming signal. In the Arctic, by contrast, there is much more extreme warming than in the Antarctic. But there's been similar levels of sea ice loss in both places and considerable contributions to sea level rise from ice melting in Greenland and from ice melting in West Antarctica. So it's very easy to gloss over it as climate change and warming, but there are very many things going on in both places. And what we've been trying to look at is the combination of these stresses, particularly around West Antarctica, and mainly focusing our effort on marine ice losses. And when I say marine ice, I mean um, the frozen sea surface that we'll call sea ice. That's around less area and around for less of the time. Secondly, there is ice shelves, and that's where the big ice cap that sits over the continent flows out and meets the sea. That's been breaking up and retreating. So we're losing big ice shelves. And these are hundreds of metres thick, so quite different to the sort of metre-thick sea ice that comes and goes each year. This, this has been there for thousands, maybe tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. And then lastly, there are glaciers. And I think lots of people are more familiar with glaciers than, than the other two sorts of marine ice. And glaciers can terminate on land or they can flow right out to sea. And uh, in Antarctica, they generally flow along fjords. So when they retreat, they expose a brand new environment to Antarctica. And that is fjords. Why do I say a brand new environment? Well, Antarctica has lots of fjords, but they're all ice-filled, so you can't see them, and they're not environments that marine life can, can colonise. And that's very important because fjords are a different sort of environment. Antarctica is the only place on the planet with no rivers, and therefore no estuaries. And that means that a lot of what we think of our coastal environments like salt marshes and seagrass beds and mud flats, they all tend to be associated with low energy uh, periods where the, where the water is fairly calm. And Antarctica doesn't have those. It has lots of rough, wave-exposed, rocky shores. But with the formation of these, these new fjords as glaciers retreat on them, there is a new type of low energy environment and a new sort of habitat for life to invade. So our team across very many countries, spanning all continents, have been looking at how life has been adapting to the losses of that sea ice, the ice shelves and the glacier retreat. When it comes to opportunities that they present, not just for those species, but also for coming up with mitigation strategies to tackle the overarching problem of climate change. You mentioned phytoplankton blooms in the summer. I can imagine those capture a lot of carbon. 
Is the fjord exposure changing the ways that those are interacting with global emissions as well? Yes, uh, this is something that's really only been emerging in the last five or six years, that Antarctica has a very big role to play, or at least the, the seas around it, in terms of capturing, storing and sequestering that carbon. Capturing is, is the process of photosynthesis when marine algae or um, macroalgae like kelp fix that carbon and then it can be stored or not in the, in the bodies of organisms. So um, you might think naturally of forests, um, there's a lot of carbon stored in the, in the trunks of trees, but phytoplankton are single-celled organisms that only have very brief lives. And so there's not much storage going on. It's kind of a capture, and then it's either passed into the food chain and eaten by animals such as krill or, or life on the seabed, or they die and are broken down in the microbial loop by bacteria and protists. And the fate of most of that phytoplankton, and indeed most animals, is to be broken down a rot um, through the microbial loop, the bacteria in the water column, or the bacteria on the, um, on the seabed in the sediments. But a small proportion becomes sequestered. And then it's when it's locked away out of the carbon cycle. And if it leaves the carbon cycle, it's not free to go back into the water dissolved and back into equilibrium with the atmosphere. And so carbon has left the cycle. And that's really valuable to society because it's that excess of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is our big problem. And it's really becoming apparent how big that problem is. Now, I won't use um, this forum for discussing the problems of climate change. I think probably you've all heard <laughs> and have much exposure to how diverse those problems are for biodiversity and for human society. The key thing is that we're learning that it's becoming very difficult and very expensive to capture and store and sequester carbon industrially, and there are many ways to do that, or to build lower carbon systems, to uh, change our energy to be lower carbon, but out there, biodiversity is doing this marvellous thing. So Antarctica has an incredibly rich biodiversity anyway. When, when you think of it, you might think of this, this sort of white desert on land with just a few penguins, seals, whales swimming around the coast, feeding on um, a superabundant shrimp called krill. But below those, there is this extraordinary diversity on the seabed, tens of thousands of species, most of which have only been seen once or twice by specialists and may not be seen again. They could be incredibly abundant, but we know so little about the sea and its life there that we're still really only getting to explore the big animals. And we, whenever you go to a place where you don't know the life there well, you sort of describe the big animals first and then the next biggest and so on and so on. And you cascade down until you get to the, the things that are um, smaller than a couple of millimetres. 
which is most of life on Earth. <laughs> um, but we don't know those around Antarctica at all. What we are starting to get a grips with is the amazing jobs that it is doing, helping us all over the world. And that is that those rich phytoplankton blooms take up lots of carbon. Some of that they sequester the seabed, falling through the water column and evading the microbial loop of breakdown, getting placed into marine sediments and gradually buried until they're below the oxygen layers where the seabed microbes work and getting locked away for future layers of carbonate rock or coals and you know, think fossilization. Some of it passes into the food chain and some of those animals die and get sequestered. And what we're seeing is that our monitoring for the last 20 or 30 years of life around the seabed, we found that underneath areas of sea ice loss, a remarkable thing has been happening right under our noses. And that is that they are taking up more and more carbon. They're growing more each year in response to more food availability. And it's not quite as simple as it sounds in that there isn't always necessarily more food. It's just that the food is around for a longer period of time. Life in cold waters feeds and grows pretty slowly. And it does that for lots of reasons, but mainly the food is around for a short period of time each year. And because it's cold, enzymes work slowly and it takes a long time to digest that food. So the process of consuming a mouthful so it is actually integrated into your body as tissues might take three weeks. So if you only have three or four months of food availability, that's not very many mouthfuls. So if the sea ice gives you an extra month on each side, that might be an extra three or four mouthfuls. So it's made a big difference to your annual feeding, even though the total amount of food in terms of those marine, those tiny marine algae, the phytoplankton, might be a little different. It's just spread over a longer period. So they've got a longer period to eat food, a longer period to grow, and that's allowed them to incorporate a lot more carbon into their bodies. Now, these animals live a long time, so we're getting this big pool of stored carbon, all increasing. And when we go out and measure it, if we measure it for a square metre, and we can do this in the shallows using scuba and go down into the cold waters, or we can do it from um, a polar research vessel like the James Clark Ross or now the Sir David Attenborough, we have all sorts of equipment that we can send down to the seabed, like cameras and cores. And so we can look at how much carbon there is in this sea life. And we can see that it's greatly increasing and that it's increasing over a vast area. And that's, that's the catch, that there's the continental shelf around Antarctica is about 4.4 million square kilometres. So we've got this truly vast area that is increasing its rate of carbon storage. 
And not only that, but it's increasing in direct response to climate change. And we call that a feedback. Now, there are lots of positive feedbacks on climate change, and that's not, that's not good news. That's not necessarily what it thinks. Positive means exacerbating. And so that means that as climate change proceeds, things get worse um, and less carbon is captured, which in turn makes climate change even stronger. What we have here is a negative feedback, a mitigating feedback on climate change. So as climate change gets stronger, more carbon dioxide in the air, more warming of the polar environment, then sea ice losses mean a bigger uh, or longer phytoplankton bloom, more growth on the seabed, more carbon sequestered, feeding back and reducing climate change. So it's a very rare and powerful negative feedback on climate change and responsible for a huge amount of carbon capture to sequestration going on in the world. I think we're well aware of tropical forests and the incredible efficiency of systems like mangroves um, and seagrasses that far outweigh the polar systems in terms of efficiency per unit area. But those are on small areas and they're all decreasing. So their power is getting smaller. This is one place in the world that's a positive story. The power of the feedback and the power of the carbon sink is getting bigger with climate change. It's helping us fight back. And sometimes this is called a, a nature-based solution. And it's only going to work if we can safeguard those, those areas doing this service, this ecosystem service. If we can establish protection from human intervention of things like um, fishery or mining or um, habitat destruction in whatever way. So conservation of these new opening carbon sinks becomes really important. Capturing and sequestering carbon industrially is very expensive. It works out at about $46, $60 a tonne if you want to put it on a cement factory, for example. And that's, that's a good case in point in that cement and making steel are some of our biggest sources of, of carbon outputs, of carbon emissions. And so when we are looking rounds to try and work out how best to use our energy, our effort, and perhaps most importantly, our costs in trying to reduce our carbon emissions, and after all, and governments around the world are signing up to carbon net zero 2050. We have a, a very big goal and not much time to achieve it. So let's start with the most efficient way that we can lock carbon away. And life is very, very good at doing this. Uh, it's much more efficient than we are. We have some pretty good um, tech-based solutions, and we can see that going on all around us with the rush to get, um, for example, electric cars and more solar panels and more um, wind farms. And there is quite a wide range of solutions and we will need all of these. It's, it's not that nature-based solutions mean that we don't require all these tech-based solutions as well. It's just that for each pound spent, 
nature-based solutions offer a very, very powerful return on our money with the added bonus of looking after biodiversity with the many other benefits that that brings society. And if we look across the way that we can spend that money, if we preserve mature ecosystems as they are, we get a much faster, harder return on our money. What I mean is that mature ecosystems, i.e. ones that are relatively untouched, are very efficient in terms of their ecological functioning. And so what we've got is a range of trophic levels, a range of different organisms all working together very efficiently. If we have to restore a damaged ecosystem, it takes a long time to get back to that super efficient, natural, mature system in terms of efficiency of doing things like carbon capture to sequestration. If we have to create them from scratch, as in we've completely destroyed an ecosystem, then that's even going to take even longer and even harder work. And it's and we have to do it fairly carefully. It's not just simply like planting trees. Lots of systems have a very distinct succession. So you not only have to use native uh, organisms, but you need to do them in the right sequence so it works um, and that you have the right things in place for each set of organisms uh, as they are put there. And so um, I think all of those, those nature-based solutions, whether we're protecting mature systems or restoring damaged ones or creating brand new ones, they're all great ways of doing things that not just have the benefits of our climate mitigation, but also powerful in terms of restoring biodiversity with the very many other benefits that brings. But let's start with the mature systems. In the polar parts of the world, we're fortunate to have more mature, undamaged ecosystems than the rest of the world, partly because they're further away, partly because they're more hostile in winter. There are long historical reasons, but we can see how quickly and easily it is to damage with historical whaling and sealing. Whenever we've rushed and grabbed resources, it's, it always seems to be done in an unsustainable manner. And we've got an opportunity here that fairly mature systems are their value to society is becoming apparent. And uh, as a recent paper by uh, Eric Sala and others showed, in the polar parts of the world, we have less area protected than all of the other areas. And all of the other areas are still way below what we think we need in terms of the effectiveness of these nature-based solutions. So we need worldwide conservation, particularly of marine areas, but also of important terrestrial carbon sinks. And of those, we need perhaps the polar ones the most of all, because there we have these negative feedbacks on climate. So not just carbon sinks, not just effective ways of burying and removing carbon from the cycle, but ones that actually work against climate change. So real potential value and real cost effectiveness from um, for looking after polar biodiversity, helping it to help us. A note for the listeners at home who might be taking in this information and 
equally agog at the scale and complexity of the issue and the hardship that the teams working in polar regions face. There's always this desire to want to do better, to want to do more, but not knowing where to start. You know, whilst a lot of the big steps are up to governments, are up to businesses, are up to those kind of huge-scale partners, is there anything that a listener at home could do or could feel, or is there any advice that you would give to them to inspire some resilience in a world that just does not seem to be slowing down? There's always things we can do. There really are, and I think people are becoming more aware of not just by lobbying and protest, but also our personal actions, reducing our own carbon footprints, um, reusing and making more effort to reuse and seeing recycling second to that. And going out and helping with nature conservation, it's, it's not all about the far ends of the earth. Nature conservation and helping look after biodiversity so it can help to look after us that that can start locally regionally nationally there's so many projects that it's easy to get involved in there's all sorts of urban greening and uh, rewilding that is incredibly effective as well at tackling problems of climate change and other important societal problems it is all linked up and i think Perhaps the last year of COVID has made a lot of people step back and have a look at their surroundings and have a new realisation of what is important to them. And I think people have all spent time in gardens, spent time in parks and wild spaces. They've got out to the countryside whenever they can and had a new appreciation of it. And so... It's not just about our aesthetics and about feeling good. It's actually a powerful force at looking after society's future as well. So get involved. There are so many societies um, and organisations that you can join for volunteering work. There's personal practices that you can do to help nature and to help reduce your, your impact on the planet. So yes, I, I really think you can do little things, you can do middle things, you, you can involve your whole life in it, but everything really does contribute. And I think it also gives a huge amount of welfare benefits. It actually makes you feel good getting involved. So um, yeah, I, I would uh, encourage people to get out there and do bits, not just to help the planet, but to help you. It's surprising how good you can feel by getting involved in nature conservation. If people want more detail, there'll be links to those, those papers associated and so people can burrow into them uh, and have a look at how we go about calculating um, some of these things so they can see the maths behind it. Um, and it's always good for budding scientists or um, anybody interested in detail to, to work through things themselves and say, well, you know, how did, how did they do this? And uh, perhaps they've, they, they've also made errors or perhaps there are ways that we can improve the technique. So it's always good to cast a critical eye um, and they'll see where, where we come up with our figures and how we do that. Um, and so they get a little bit of experience of, um, of how science works. I would encourage 
people to go and look, um, even if only briefly, reading an abstract or something. We've got a very active website and we have a Twitter feed, at Bass News, but there are lots of other polar groups. There's the Scott Polar Research Institute that, again, has, has a website. There's the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany and lots of projects across the world. So um, I think do a quick search and, and find out what's going on. And with many of these science papers, I mean, you, you'll see the, the links to, to the ones associated with this program. But in all of those, the lead scientist usually gives their email address. Please email lead scientists. And I, I get all sorts of questions from people all, all over the world and not just scientists, sometimes school kids. Don't be afraid to ask scientists direct questions and, and get in contact because um, that's part of our jobs as well. Uh, and we're happy to do it. <laughs>